for listening to this artist talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia for the 2016 Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art. In this live recording, Louise Hazelton discusses her work on display in Magic Object and how she incorporates space into her practice. Can I ask you to join me in very warmly welcoming Louise Hazelton? Thank you. Thanks for coming along. It's great to see so many people here. It's very gratifying to know that there's some interest in the work. It's often a bit of a mystery. You make your work, you put your work out there and you kind of walk away and wonder what happens to it. So it's lovely to be speaking to such an audience. Um, I guess the first thing I'd like to do is to say thanks to Lisa for inviting me to be involved in this show. It's been a fantastic experience making the work, uh, setting up the work, meeting the other artists, being involved with that um, fantastic weekend that we had when everyone was in town. It's just been really, really exciting. It's been great. Um, I guess I'll start by introducing myself, um, especially as we're kind of, you know, talking a little bit about, um, you know, South Australia. I um, grew up in South Australia. I grew up in a small country town called Millicent down in the southeast. I was one of six children, grew up in a single parent family. My mum brought us all up and so that kind of necessitated a pretty free range kind of existence for the first, you know, 15 years or so of our lives. We were like this kind of wandering pack of six that kind of had, you know, very active imaginations and became very resourceful, I think. And I think the older I get, I think the more I think about that and my first, you know, 12, 15 years and what all that meant. I've always been a gatherer of objects. Growing up in the country was great. In many ways, it was, you know, another time. In the 60s and 70s, it was very innocent. There was a lot of space. We just used to kind of go for extended walks out to the forest and back again and, and all these kind of, you know, wonderful kind of magical childhood experiences um, that, that we had. And I do think that kind of comes back and stays in my, my head at some stage. I um, have lived mainly in Adelaide. I've lived in the UK for a few years and in Melbourne for a while as well. And currently, as Lisa has said, my, my day job um, is at the other end of North Terrace. I work at the um, University of South Australia in the Bachelor of Visual Art degree. I take care of the foundation studio. And it's great to see a foundation student here today. And um, also the uh, sculpture and installation studio. So I have kind of, you know, quite Quite a few, um, you know, commitments, I guess, and I managed to squeeze in um, making my work, as Lisa said, in um, West Croydon, in Liffey, West Croydon. I've got a little studio and I work, um, you know, in the inner west suburbs here in Adelaide. So... I guess when I, well, I was thinking on the weekend about what I would say to you about my work and I think I got about three lines down and then I thought, okay, what am I actually going to say? What? And I, I think for me it's kind of, um, I find it a bit difficult to know how to, I guess, address the visual via the verbal. That's always problematic for me, especially, or it's not problematic, I can always talk about other people's work, I can rave on about artwork kind of... Um, endlessly, but when it comes to my own work, I find it a bit more um, tricky, I suppose. So I'm going to say a few things that I think um, that were in my head when I made this work and maybe connected up to work that I've made before. And then I'm going to ask um, you guys to just um, throw out any questions. And that way, at least, I kind of know that I'm you know, answering things that are of interest to you. But um, I think for quite a while... 
I've been, I went to art school in the late 1980s down at Underdale. I went here at University of South Australia. Um, and I was kind of pretty innocent. I went in thinking that I would be a painter because that's what art was. But as soon as I got to the sculpture studio and started playing around with things, uh, starting to use materials, that was it. I, was, I knew that I was going to work with materials. And then I started unearthing um, lots of information and imagery about 20th century artists that really engaged me. I just fell in love with a whole lot of people such as um, Alberto Giacometti, Brancusi, Fausto Malotti, um, Hans Arp, Alexander Corder. All of those people um, really just kind of sparked me off on this um, you know, trajectory, I suppose, which I'm still on in, in some way. I think there's something about... Um, three-dimensional things in the world, about things in space, which really engage me. And this exhibition, I've got a couple of 2D things, which are, you know, slightly 2D, slightly 3D. But there's always something about the materials, the handleability, actually, you know, working, touching, you know, playing with the materials that I'm working with, which is um, quite key to um, my process, I guess. So... I think for some time I've been interested in making works which engage in some way with ideas of three-dimensionality, which for me is about you know, weight, balance, poise, all of these things of gravity, uh, how objects are arranged um, in relationship to each other, you know, the, the front and backness of things, how that actually operates in the world as well. Um, and that's been a continuum, I guess, in some ways. And what I've been doing over the last few years, I think, is just kind of um, evolving the materials that I use um, to keep my interest up. I mean, I, often I will gather materials, for example, this felt. I mean, some things are kind of quite hard won, I suppose, and some materials are just kind of picked up from, you know, the environment around me and kind of put together. But they're always very considered. I mean, sometimes things can kind of look like, and hopefully they're kind of, you know, looking a bit casual in a way, but I think things are often uh, generally very um, slowly uh, made. That, For example, the felt um, I purchased and I decided that I wanted to work with felt and sourced this felt. In the end, it came from Germany. It's German um, saddlery felt. Um, and it was been in the studio for quite a while before I started working with it. Um, I've, got an ex I've got some work in an exhibition actually in Melbourne at the moment as well, which also uses this um, felt as well. But some materials, um, such as the concrete, which is something that I really... Um, I guess it's a, a material that um, has certain qualities about it. So I decided that I would just experiment with using that particular material and that necessitated a casting process and casting is something that um, really interests me I guess in the history of 20th century sculpture as well that I've used um, with these pieces too. Um, I guess with all of that one of the things that interested me in this work was the I guess the I have to say it, the, the, the value or the strength, like the cultural value, the physical strength of various materials and I was kind of playing around with um, bringing them together such as in you know, these little pieces, the, um, the weight, the 
the solidity of the base, which is a concrete, is kind of matched up with something which is very um, airy and houses the uh, the spools that are there. Um, and it's it's a continuation as well in an interest um, about masculinity and femininity. The, you know, the, all of the sculptors that I really loved um, generally were male. There weren't that many kind of female representatives in the early 20th century. A few more have been unearthed in the last few decades, I suppose. But it was a very male um, domain, male territory, which has kind of always interested me. In fact, I was having a chat with a colleague this morning. We were quite gleeful, in fact, that um, Sheila Hicks, who's a fantastic American textiles artist, is represented in the Sydney Biennial this year. I'm not sure whether any of you know Sheila Hicks, but she's just um, kind of amazing, an amazing role model as well, an American artist who's been working since about the 50s with um, textiles in various ways and has been very singular about her project and about her work too. So, you know, things kind of come around cyclically, I suppose, but her works are very um, sculptural, I think, too. So, I was interested in, I guess, all of those things coming into play um, somehow and um, bringing in the, the hefty kind of solid materials with the lightness of the, um, the woolen um, spools that are in there as well. I think that the wool I find interesting because, you know, at one moment it can be a really delicate single thread, but in these cases it can be something, you know, much more, sorry, I kept moving the microphone away, much more of a, um, an object, a thing, I suppose. And then, you know, well, actually the, sorry, I'm jumping around a bit here, but that's the nature of the beast, I think. This, this piece was actually the first one that I started with. I was given permission to take possession of this fantastic um, ball of sisal there, which I'd had my eyes on for some years, in fact. It's been um, in the possession of the textile studio at the University of South Australia, kind of sitting in the corner of the storeroom. And every time I went in there, I just admired it and loved it and you know, really appreciated it as a thing, I think. So about the middle of last year, I started kind of working with it, I grabbed it and thought, okay, this would make a fantastic, you know, base for a sculpture or the core of a sculpture. And I kept kind of adding things to it and then taking them away and working with it. And in the end, I think after about I don't know, six or eight months, it occurred to me that actually all I wanted to do really was just to present that. It was the thingness of it, you know, of the object itself that was enough. It really didn't need any. Um, you know, fancying up from me, it wasn't kind of required. There was something about that, um, the weightiness, the history of it, that, um, you know, kind of balanced up well, I think, with the, the concrete. Um, and that's, that was the first one. That's kind of where these started from um, after that, I guess. And actually, I was just reading on the weekend, I'm not sure anyone's read it, a review of the exhibition that Terry Hoskin has um, written and, you know, it's a very um, eloquent, she speaks very eloquent um, about, I think, a number of um, aspects of the show, but uh, she says that there are many squares that want to be circles in this exhibition, which I thought was really quite lovely. That didn't kind of really occur to me until I was kind of right, you know, quite down the track, I think, with, with what I was making. Um, and I wanted that, you know, that softness, that heaviness and the squares, which have the kind of the right angles, and then there's the organic circle, which kind of comes into it. So 
kind of sounds a bit naff now that I say it, but you know, hopefully in these shapes that, that kind of hard edgedness and softness are kind of balancing out or matching up or strengthening each other, I guess, um, in a way was what I wanted. I guess the, this piece over here, the, which is called Guest Host, um, I was interested... It's a woven piece and I was interested in the fact that you know, fabrics are often woven, although felt is a bit of an anomaly in that way. It's not woven, it's kind of pushed and pounded together and kind of joins itself, whereas most fabrics would be woven. Um, so I wanted to kind of uh, draw out, I guess, the, the strength of that, the timelessness of such a simple... Um, strategy or a simple um, technique. So the, they're just two very simple pieces which are woven um, from lead and small rods of dowel. And it is actually um, lead. I mean, I know that some people have been a bit unsure about what it is, which is fantastic because you know, it looks like it's any number of things, but it's um, lead and dowel. So is that kind of borrowing from you know, the industrial world, I guess, um, and bringing those materials into you know, another existence, another arena, using another strategy to kind of strengthen or weaken them, I suppose, in some way as well. I think someone said to me, you have to talk about your titles. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'll do that. <laughs> yes, Terry does thresh that out quite well, actually. Yeah, yeah, she's done a good job of that, yes. The titles in the work, I, do, I like to title the works that I make, and this um, series of works... When I was making them, when I was working on these little pieces, um, I was listening to Radio National, as I often do. <laughs> I think I was just dozing off, so it was probably Philip Adams or Late Night Live or something. It was talking about, um, talking with an American guy about kind of um, military strategy and used the term asymmetric engagement, which I... Yeah, just kind of stayed in my head, I think, because I thought, in a way, that's what I was doing here. I was bringing things which, you know, have the potential to be considered quite unequal, kind of bringing them together, because the term asymmetrical engage, asymmetric engagement or asymmetric warfare is kind of a war between um, two uh, groups of unequal capacities, often refers to an insurgency um, or a, a terrorist group or guerrilla action or whatever. Um, so that kind of led me on to a bit more kind of looking at, I guess, strategies of war. I mean, it hadn't really occurred to me that, but of course, it makes great sense that, you know, there's a lot of time and effort spent by a lot of people thinking about um, strategies for war. And these titles generally, apart from the asymmetric engagement, all come from um, a Chinese, an ancient Chinese text called The Art of War, where there's, as Terry says, very poetic references to ways of um, engaging or defeating um, uh, an enemy. There was one that I remember that said something like, make a sound in the east and strike in the west, which I thought was very beautiful. <laughs> but, you know, it was the, the underlying kind of motivation of that, uh, putting something which is, you know, a, a potentially a fatal strike into such poetic language seemed, you know, very kind of beautiful to me. Um, so these three titles all kind of um, come from those suggested strategies from the, from the art of war. Uh, yes, sure. This one is called Empty Fort Strategy. This one is Strike of Non-Fort. That one is Guest Host. 
and these pieces on the floor here are called asymmetric engagement. Um, yeah, yep, <laughs> yes, yep. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I got a bit carried away with this one, with the Wild West, I have to say. Um, I sort of took the, um, the use of the saddlecloth uh, with the closeness with the denim and sort of had cowboys riding into the West. So I got it completely wrong. But anyway, I just thought, I just thought I'd let you know, that's, that's where I took this particular work um, as a guide. I thought, oh, that makes sort of sense, you know. So sorry. No, I need to apologise. That's what's it. These occasions are fantastic because I get a sense of you know, what's going on for other people. I think that's the thing. When I make artworks, I feel like, well, they're kind of, you know, they don't, hopefully they don't kind of pin everything down immediately. I'd like them to be open, open enough so that people can come in and play around with them a bit and bring other stuff that I've not even thought of to the works and that's fantastic. I wonder if you can talk about the element of scale in your work. It's obviously a consideration, a big consideration, but it's kind of interesting to me. A lot of the work are sort of intentionally ambiguous. If you were to see a photograph of some of them, you could say, oh, it's something tiny. I mean, this could be a little cotton reel. They could be threads on a sewing machine. And, and the denim jeans, well, they could be almost any size, you know, adult, child, whatever. It's obviously a big consideration. Yes. <laughs> it's a tricky question in a way as well because I think I would love to see these up huge. I could, you know, they're almost kind of act as little models or maquettes, I think. It would be lovely to see these as, as a series, you know, out in the public somewhere, I think. But I think, I mean, part of it, I was talking before about my, um, you know, when I was drawn or very attracted to objects um, in my years at art school, I think that was in part for me about... Uh, feeling that an object was a good kind of huggable size that you kind of go up, you know, put your arms around it, I think. So that aspect of being able to approach something and not feel overwhelmed by it but not feel totally um, in control of it or that it was controllable, I think, is quite important as well. In this case... I mean, um, you know, because it's indoors and we've got a certain space that we've, you know, we, we have to work with. Um, I mean, I quite like those. I mean, that's, that's a restriction in a way, but actually it's a, a useful restriction. That's not a negative thing. I think, all right, this is the space I've got. You know, how am I going to actually operate? What am I going to bring to that space? Is there going to be one big thing? And the way I often work is actually a number of components or elements kind of coming in there and being combined and that's kind of what I was interested in I suppose in, in this work and in many other works. So things that you know it's at first seem quite um, disparate or disconnected with a bit of kind of engaging with it. Hopefully these things can kind of um, come together and be seen a bit more as a, a family or a grouping or informing each other I suppose um, in different ways as well. So the, the, the scale, particularly in these works, I wanted them to be kind of, um, yeah, uh, approachable but not overly controllable, I suppose, at the same time as well. I mean, this, this beautiful big, you know, reel of the sizal here, that was um, a determinant in the whole exhibition in a way because I wanted that to be kind of bigger than these little things which were kind of spin-offs, I suppose, from that. And I, want, I was really pleased that that was... Um, a large upscale, it's almost like a kind of a, you know, an artefact from the Industrial Re Revolution or something. I'm not really sure whether you'd find that today, but 
um, you know, the scale of it makes it a freaky thing in a way and that was kind of part of what I wanted to draw people's attention to. Thanks, Louise. Um, do you know how old this incredible spool is? That's all right. That's all right. No, I'm not exactly sure how old that is. I think it's probably at least 40 or 50 years old, maybe even more. That's, that's um, as far back as just conversations can remember it. So when it was actually made, I'm not really sure. But, you know, it's hanging in there. For an organic material, it's survived quite well, I think. Don't know where it's from. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And I'm kind of happy about that. Like that kind of gives it another life for me in a way. Yeah. I think it's sizal. If it's coir, it's coconut fibre. Right. And it's probably, you know, it could be from the backwaters of India where all of that coir comes from. Yeah. I don't actually know what sizal is. Well, it's very similar. Is it? Is it coconut fibre as well? Yeah. So, and 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 that's the other thing. The kind of, I guess, the botanical history, and then the kind of, I can't, you know, I can't see that without seeing people move their hands together to make that, yeah, right. and think then about yeah. the coconut fibre turning into that. Yeah. It's didn't need anything else because no, it's already it's been through so much, hasn't it, to get to there. I had to kind of accept that my contribution wasn't. You know, I had to let go a bit and go, yeah, actually, you're right, just didn't need anything else. It was as it was, and that was its fabulousness. And you said that about felt. You, you basically, well, you implied that with felt because you said, I love what you said about it comes into the world through pounding and through blending, and I cannot think of felt without thinking of Joseph Boyce. Yeah. And so do you want to just talk a little bit about, yeah. you know, when I bring people in here, I kind of, there's something really elemental about these materials, even though in essence they've all been through the ringer. But talk to that a little bit. Yeah, no, actually that's, that's good. I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting hearing those because I'm only kind of just bringing these things to consciousness now. I think I do quite, um, I don't know, I'm always a bit suspicious of the word intuitively, but I think I don't try to kind of, censor myself or overthink things too much when I'm choosing my materials and then after a while once the work kind of exists in the world then I'll stand back and you know look at it and listen to comments you know from other people but I think you're right there is something kind of elemental about um, all of these um, elements here and I mean the Joseph Boyce comment yes I think you know felt it's got a big kind of you know weight of 20th century art history through I'd say mainly Joseph Boyce and um, Robert Morris who made you know from to my mind absolutely exquisite yeah really beautiful works with felt and really kind of owned that material I suppose um, and this is this is kind of the second large-scale work I've made with the felt now and I'm really enjoying working with it and I think it is in part um, kind of a masculine feminine thing as well I suppose I do want to kind of reclaim it I mean I think I'm trying to work out how to say this without sounding kind of indignant I suppose but I think you know Joseph Boyce and Robert Morris they, and they get a lot of kind of credibility for using these kind of fabrics but there's not a lot of credibility that comes a woman's way I think for using traditionally masculine materials and then in a way they've kind of owned that territory this is sounding very paranoid now but you know just kind of wanting to bring back some of that kind of possibility with these materials and kind of reappraise those materials away in a way and I think I'm not the only one there because I think you know Sheila Hicks being in the um, biennial is actually symptomatic of of that in a broader way too I think but 
Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, I like the felt and these because they're kind of, you know, good down-to-earth, honest kind of materials in a way. Denim is like, you know, the working man's kind of um, outfit. It's got a nice kind of working... Well, its origin, I guess, was a nice working class kind of integrity to it, but it's been kind of what made into, you know, catwalk <laughs> kind of creations these days, which gives it another kind of um, understanding or reading as well. But I like the kind of the workingness of these, I think. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, Terry's comment about circles and squares and things kind of coming apart and joining is actually very present for me now as I'm standing in front of the work, not necessarily what I was really consciously thinking about when I was making the works, but yeah, putting putting things together, letting things kind of marry and settle into the new relationship that they're with is kind of important in there as well. Do you think that the collection plays a role? I look at the work and I think so much about Donald Judd in the courtyard and I do, our Joseph Boys is particularly important. It's not up at the moment, but it has been recently. It was the insulation that was used in Anthony Doffey's gallery. And so those, those large half cylindrical forms in that particular work were, were kind of bodies. You know, there's something so embodied about that. And of course, we know the story of Boyce, um, his kind of heroic fall from the sky, the kind of, you know, that, that moment and then they're being wrapped up by the Tata tribesmen in felt and all of those kind of principles come to, come to bear on this. But I do think about the collection, particularly for you and perhaps for Tom too, being South Australian in that it is kind of your collection and that probably for me became the most apparent in the first biennial I worked on, which was the 2012 biennial, and it was through Nicholas Follin's kind of insistence, in a way, that his work had to be in the elder wing because he felt like it was his wing. Um, I'm kind of... I'm interested as a curator into what, you know, in a sense, this Adelaide Biennial means from a local perspective, like, and whether or not you think you have a different sense of place and perhaps space. Yeah, I'm not sure how to answer that. I mean, I do... I do feel a sense of kind of ownership, I suppose, of the collection here at AGSA and I always come in, you know, bring students in or just come in and hang out or whatever and we're certainly doing that a lot in, um, you know, preparation for this work. So I'm not really sure that I can kind of... Um, yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, yes. I mean, I'm, I'm going to make myself sound quite fickle because I think my favourites change from time to time as well. I love the little, the William Morris room downstairs. I think it's absolutely gorgeous and the beautiful pinched glass, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, pinched kind of wine glasses, I suppose, um, I really like. And I also am a real fan of, um, there's been a Barbara Hepworth upstairs, which is absolutely exquisite too, which I love. Um, the Belinda de Brooker piece, I think, is you know, kind of compelling and repelling at the same time, but a very powerful, strong work, I think. Um, there's lots of things that I really like in the collection, I think. I'll just say, this, just listening to you speak about the felt, it's something that several people have asked me about previous work, which occurs to me now, is kind of coming back in again. And this is that, that dual sense of things being... Um, 
potentially comforting but smothering at the same time. And I think that's probably going on here as well, I think. Um, with some of the works I made a year or so ago with, with the wool, which is again, just a single strand, which has the potential to kind of really um, you know, suffocate something if it's kind of um, repeated over and over, if it's wrapped. And I think the felt kind of has that, yeah, has, has that potential, I think, as well. And that's, I mean, it's very kind of um, at a, you know, it's not to the surface, those kind of thoughts, but hopefully, I mean, the thought of lead being a fabric, there's something quite dangerous about that as well, I think. And so, you know, there's something about the the domestic arts or whatever that I just want to kind of reappraise in some way. They kind of have unstable bodies too, don't they? They have really unstable bodies, that, that lead, you know, that the... If, if you've touched it, the kind of the softness of lead, the malleability of lead, even the concrete, its transformation. I think there was a question over here. I saw Louise looking this way. Sandra. Louise, I wonder if uh, you or Lisa would care to comment on the idea of wrapping and winding and the links with Hiromi Tango's work next door. It, what, what Sandra's in her question has alluded to is the kind of process by which we negotiate together where and with whom the works speak. And that's a really um, demanding part of, of the curatorial charter, really, uh, particularly in a show that has so much sculpture. So um, there was a, we, we decided together that this work would be in conversation with Hiromi's. There's clearly a connection around the wrapping, but I'll let Louise talk to that specifically. In terms of the aesthetic analogy, I mean, you can see here that what's happening in this space, Louise's work has an austerity and a kind of an elegance which is undone in the surfate of colour and form that's happening out there. So I think I do curate via antithesis. I think working in opposition and juxtaposition is perhaps a very elemental, basic human way to think and to be. So that, that is played out, but also that there is a sympathy of materials, that there is a kind of sympathetic magic, really, to take the next step that's actually living in, in that work. It has a life. Yep. And also, of course, in Hiromi's work that's out here. So we'll come... Will I throw... Can I throw here? Is it, it's around this, isn't it, what we're talking about? Beautiful. I was thinking also of Roy Wiggins' work and the yarn art, the winding. So there's a great thread going right through the gallery. Yeah. 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 The Roy Wiggins works I find exquisite, actually. They're really incredibly beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's a good question, actually. The wrapping is something that I've been doing for a while, um, yeah, and I, I think, I guess, in, an, in a you know, in an intellectual way, I'm interested in this repetitive action as you know a cathartic process. I suppose. I mean, some years ago, I was introduced to the work of Judith Scott. I'm not sure whether you know her. Amazing. She passed away, I think, maybe about ten years ago. An American artist who had um, Down syndrome and was actually institutionalised for most of her life. But late in her life, she was um, she started the process of wrapping up um, objects um, in the the 
the art studio and the environment that she was living in. And she's made the most amazing um, objects, which clearly, to, to my mind, to my eye, have an incredible um, compulsion about them. I don't... I made some works which were wrapped, but they were just nothing like the intensity that Judith Scott was able to kind of have in her work. I mean, she... I think she didn't hear and she didn't speak and so she communicated uh, very minimally. So there was really no way of knowing um, what was actually going on for her when she was making those works. But in her last, I don't know, I think 15, 20 years of life, she compulsively made, like, I don't know how many, but hundreds of these objects and some are quite large. And a number of them are collected in the, oh, the collection in Switzerland. Yeah, the outside art. Is it the Princehorn collection? Somewhere. I'm not sure. That, but they're kind of um, being gathered now and um, exhibited in um, art museums, whatever as well. But those works have always, like, they engage me for a number of reasons. Um, you know, like, I always would love to know how, at what point she decided to stop. Like, when did she decide this was finished? Was it an aesthetic thing? Was it not? Was it just had enough of that one or out of this colour or had enough of the day or whatever? I don't know. But there's some amazing works that have got all sorts of objects, like cups and whatever, kind of wound up in them. She just kind of gathered things like, and then just kind of compulsively made these. There's this great sense of um, little discernment, I suppose. It just looked like anything that was in her wake kind of was gathered in and, and included in. So in terms of kind of... Um, the solidity, the mass, the weight, the presence of the object, they're, they're really kind of quite amazing. So I had a go at kind of doing a bit of winding um, around some um, works I was working on. And, you know, it, it ultimately it was kind of quite unsatisfying as an object for me because, I don't know, it felt like the process... Oh, I don't know, in a way I was not denigrating the process but kind of trying to get it to do something that it wasn't going to do in a way. I mean, I've also had a lot of experience in travelling to India and there's often, I'm often drawn to objects which have been wrapped in some way. It might be a tree wrapped in wool or went to a magnificent Jain temple once which we were told had a rock which had been there... Um, since uh, about the 1600s and every day as a devotional act it was covered over in silver leaf it would have its daily covering of silver leaf kind of added to it so at this stage when I got to see you know in the 21st or 20th century I think it was um it was just this big silver blob like that and there was no evidence of rock whatsoever <laughs> so this that for, for me it seemed like it was a venerating of that object but actually it was a controlling, a smothering, an annihilation of that object as well. And so, yeah, yeah, that's right. There's that, that double edge. And that kind of feels a bit in there for me as well. There was something about, you know, a ritual act in the rock that was being covered. And, you know, I don't know how big the rock was. I imagine it was only about that big and you know when I saw it it was that big so it was more silver leaf than than rock at that stage but yeah that compulsion to cover and you know wrap and whatever was <laughs> quite amazing so I don't know whether that answers anything but it's just <laughs> some thought. No, that's good that's very good we've got one question here and then Gay up the back and then I think we might I feel like I could do this all day it's so fascinating I just love the minimalist restraint of your work and to come into this magic this magic room and to feel that restraint. Don't rap. 
Terry kind of says that you're, you're a bit of the odd woman out in the show, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah, that your alter ego is, is Chris Bond. Yeah. Uh, Terry's review, by the way, is available online, so it's, it is accessible via the, the web and it's uh, published in ArtLink. Gay. <laughs> I, I have to say, I don't feel that confident with um, colour. I feel like the colour is kind of subordinate to the material. Um, and I think, you know, once I kind of started... The, the you know the colours that I kind of were was already using that like this like in a way I suppose the colour of this kind of was the the focus was the centre and I didn't want the colour to be dominant I wanted other aspects of the works which is often the case I suppose with the things that I make to be kind of coming out I mean colour is an interesting thing I think you know surprisingly this is probably one of the most well, actually, the show I had at the EAF was quite colourful too, I think, yeah. Um, but I think it's, it's kind of a tricky thing and it's a tricky thing for sculptors as well, I think, to think about, you know, the colour and weight and the material and the three-dimensionality as well. So, I don't know, I don't, I, don't, I don't have a confident way, I suppose, to kind of really think about the colour. It's secondary to the materials that I'm using with. Although, having said that, there were two colour options with the felt. <laughs> One was a really bright blood red which just would have been wrong <laughs> you know I could never have used that I think so I you know chose this one as well though I would love to see images of horses with like these bright blood red saddles you know over them um so I guess I think in a way I probably try to not you know, maybe it is subdue the colour so that the other aspects of the work which I'm really interested in kind of come through. And some things, you know, like the denim jeans, they just had to be that kind of, you know, indigo blue. That's kind of a given, I suppose. So I guess, you know, when I'm choosing materials, the colour aspects are an aspect of what I select in there as well. But, you know, I might put something aside if I like the look of the material, but the colour's not working with other colours, I'd probably put it aside and come back you know, to it later, maybe. Uh, hopefully that <laughs> said something and all of that. I don't know. <laughs> Great. Fabulous. Anything else? You're all good? Claire? Yeah, we've got two more quick last final questions. No, it's fine. This is more a comment on the colour, but the, the, the brown tones through it is sort of really what makes it very... I think Lisa said earlier, kind of earthy, and there's a really grounded feel in here, and it is in contrast to the spaces that we've come from or moving to. And that, even though there's some bright, sort of brightness, it's all held by that, the brown that's just, you know, on the tips of things or the edges. And it's, yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to say it's a very, it's a very sort of, for me, a very strong, and it's part of the calm of the space that then leads you to the other things, I think. Yeah, that's good. That's very good. And I think it, it is form, really. Colour is form for you, Louise. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I think that's right. Colour is form. It's connected to the thing that's carrying it. You know, that's that's the thing. Yeah, and as you said, like the work's quite um, elemental, which you know those mm. colours are. I mm. think, yeah. You said earlier. You said earlier the squares were being circled. Isn't it the, the circles being square? <laughs> yes, that's right. It could well be. That's right. I mean, it could be either way. But yeah, that's right. I mean, I hadn't. When I was making this, this is. This was the final piece that I made, and I did. I made a couple of other versions of this, which were more sort of three-dimensional, which were going to lean against the wall. But I couldn't get the edge and the interior to be kind of square enough and circular enough. So I kind of gave it away, I think, and this felt like it was a bit more what I was after, I guess. And again, I, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. In in retrospect, there's a lot of kind of geometry going on here, which wasn't really what I was intending. It's just kind of what happened, I suppose, as I um, made the works. Helen sees, or well, Helen's gone, but she sees <laughs> Brokeback Mountain. Well, not quite, <laughs> but but I see Rover Thomas. Yeah? Yeah, Ildico Cove. Yeah, absolutely beautiful, that shape. Yeah. Join me in congratulating and thanking the extraordinary Louise Hazelton. Great. We are so lucky to have you in Adelaide. Congratulations and thank you. Brilliant. Thanks, everyone.